it's impossible to ignore the relentless pace at which our lives are lived. The statistics are alarming. Americans are working harder, retiring later, and enjoying less respite than our counterparts in other industrialized nations. The toll this takes is evident on our physical and mental well-being, contributing to soaring divorce rates, shortened life expectancy, and a host of other societal challenges. Our existence mirrors the very organizations that we're a part of. As our daily routines are well organized and our churches increasingly echo the corporate structures we navigate. Consequently, within our places of worship, we witness the symptoms of the societal strain. Pastoral burnout, moral lapses, the danger of abuse shrouded in secrecy, financial misconduct, leadership cultures tainted by toxicity, and an unsettling prioritization of efficiency over faithfulness. In the relentless hustle of our fast-paced lives, we find ourselves drowning in an ever-expanding sea of information with little room for contemplation. Our minds are overwhelmed by deluge of facts, struggle to discern wisdom amidst the chaos as our energy and our space decreases. It's within this noisy environment that we grapple with life's profound questions, and it's essential that we pause to navigate the turbulence threatening our well-being and our spiritual foundations. During that reflective minute of silence, where did your mind wander? And what emotions stirred in your heart? While considering the impact that our culture has had on our ability to ponder life's big questions, David Foster Wallace wrote, we don't even seem to be able to focus for a very long time on the question. Another thought leader, Andrew Sullivan, said, if the churches came to understand that the greatest threat to faith today is not hedonism, but distraction, perhaps they might begin to appeal anew to a frazzled digital generation. Christian leaders seem to think that they need more distraction to counter distraction. Their services have denigrated into emotional spasms. Their spaces drowned with light and noise and locked shut throughout the day when their darkness and silence might actually draw those whose minds and souls have grown web weary. Have you ever considered that our constant busyness might be the silent adversary of our faith. 
It's a provocative thought, isn't it? In a world where our schedules dictate our every waking moment, we find ourselves caught in the crossfire between the desire for a spiritual connection and the relentless demands of our daily lives. It's not hedonism that possesses the greatest threat to our faith. It's the ever-present distraction. Despite the stirrings of spiritual hunger and curiosity within us, the pace of modern life rarely affords the luxury for exploring these deeper dimensions. Our spirits are willing, but our schedules are locked in perpetual motion, leaving little room for contemplating life's profound questions. The noticeable absence of that precious margin for reflection becomes all too apparent in our quest for meaning and connection with God. They say you know what you truly love by what your mind and your heart wander toward when there is silence and a lack of entertainment. During that reflective minute of silence, where did your mind wander? And what emotions stirred in your heart? Many of us feel like every day we're doing all we can just to make it. Our days are full of errands and work and family and tasks and problems and setbacks and temporary layoffs and everything but good times. In the heat of that furnace, we feel like there just isn't time for anything else. We also fear not having what it takes to make it all work out. So we call on God and maybe we throw on a Christian song while we drive in hopes that it'll calm our nerves or take our mind off that situation that we haven't figured out an answer to yet. And maybe we say a quick prayer before taking a call from our school for the third time this week with our kids. And, and maybe perhaps we recite a short scripture before opening the energy bill for this month, and maybe we go to church hoping that Jesus will just all take it away and we can live like it never happened in the first place. But we're not the only ones. Matthew 27, found on page 527 of the Blue Bibles in your seat, record the story of another person living a fast paced life and wondering what to do with Jesus in the midst of it. Starting with the 11th verse. This is what it says. I'll give you some time for those who are turning pages on 527. If you don't have a Bible of your own, you can have that one as our gift to you. If you don't have one that's easy to read, you can have that one as our gift to you. If you dare say amen. amen. Now, Jesus was standing before Pilate, the Roman governor. Are you the king of the Jews? The governor asked him. Jesus replied, you have said it. But when the leading priests and the elders made their accusations against him, Jesus remained silent. 
Don't you hear all these charges they're bringing against you, Pilate demanded. But Jesus made no response to any of the charges, much to the governor's surprise. Now, it was the governor's custom each year during the Passover celebration to release one prisoner to the crowd, anyone they wanted. This year, there was a notorious prisoner, a man named Barabbas. As the crowds gathered before Pilate's house that morning, he asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Messiah? He knew very well that the religious leaders had arrested Jesus out of envy. Just then, as Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him this message. Leave that innocent man alone. I suffered through a terrible nightmare about him last night. Meanwhile, the leading priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas to be released and for Jesus to be put to death. So the governor asked again, which of these two do you want me to release to you? And the crowd shouted back, Barabbas. Pilate responded, then what should I do with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? They shouted back, crucify him. Why, Pilate demanded, what crime has he committed? But the mob roared even louder, crucify him. Pilate saw he wasn't getting anywhere, that a riot was developing. So he sent for a bowl of water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. The responsibility is yours. This is God's word. Pilate was a political leader and he was having some problems already with some of his constituents. Some of you in leadership know how that feels. And now he was faced with another situation. What should he do with this Jesus fellow? During a short conversation, Pilate asked Jesus a rather straightforward question about who he was during this intense time of his life. Scripture begins to speak of Jesus' coming all the way back at Genesis 3. And Scripture also tells us that before the foundations of the world, that Jesus was always the plan. Jesus was not plan B because plan A, being Adam and Eve, had failed in the garden. But Jesus was always, from the beginning, before the start, the key to all of creation's redemption. But here Pilate was trying to please the crowd, trying to please his wife, trying to please his boss, trying to be a good person and trying to answer this big life question of who is Jesus in the middle of this pressure cooker. And I think that most of you can identify you're trying to maintain social standing, trying to be a good husband and wife and son and daughter and trying to be a good employee while trying to figure out how to serve God in the middle of what seems like a pressure cooker. The question that Pilate had moments to answer the very people who were shouting at him had thousands of years to consider and has still gotten it wrong. To them, the Messiah would be this conquering king who came in on a big horse, who told all of God's enemies that they had messed around with God's people and now they were about to find out. And if those people, God's chosen people, who had the promise, who had the story, 
who had miracle after miracle, fulfilled prophecy after fulfilled prophecy, still couldn't grasp who Jesus was, then how in the world could Pilate grasp it in this short conversation filled with quick questions in silence? See, it was customary for the governor to release one prisoner each year at Passover to gain the acceptance of the Jews. And Pilate wanted to make the right choice about Jesus so that he would also gain their acceptance. So my question to you is, are your religious practices centered around um, specific outcomes in life? Or is the primary focus of your following Jesus Christ the deep desire to truly know and worship him? Pilate thought that surely the greater populace of the Jewish nation loved Jesus, their king, the one who had turned water into wine, the one who had healed the physically and mentally sick, the one who had led to greater job success than they had ever experienced, the one who made the social outcast acceptable, the one who had forgiven the unforgivable, the one who helped and forgotten, the one who fed the 5,000 with two fish and five loaves, the one who had walked on water, the one who had gave sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf and speech to the mute, the one who had paid their bills, the one who had raised the dead. And although a few leaders were hating on Jesus, the people, the people would consider all these things when faced with the choice and they would make the right decision. Surely. But the Passover was quickly approaching and arrangements needed to be made and their festivals needed to be prepared and they wanted to please their leaders and they had jobs and families to take care of. And so while in the pressure cooker, they also sided with their leaders who after all had to have taken more time to consider these choices than they people with all these different entanglements in their lives, right? I know y'all have never been there. Pastor got to be right because, you know, I got all these other things to worry about so he can worry about all the God stuff and I'll just go and listen to him and then I'll get it all right in about 15 minutes and we'll walk out of this thing and everything will be together like a nice little sitcom. We'll roll the credits. So Jesus lost his value to Pilate and Pilate therefore turned Jesus over to the crowd was the reason that you started your pathway to deconstructing your faith centered around Jesus seemingly losing his usefulness to bring about some specific outcome in your life. Is your desire, as Paul says, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ in him crucified? Are your religious practices centered around some specific outcome in life or is the primary focus of your following Jesus Christ the deep desire to truly know and worship him? In the narrative of Pilate, we encounter a familiar toxic trinity of our times, an insatiable hunger for truth, the conviction that we define it independently in the ceaseless juggling act of managing family, hobbies, chores and children and sports and church responsibilities. The lifestyle has given rise to what we like to call reflective poverty. A deficiency in thoughtful consideration and contemplation. 
Consider the countless individuals in our culture striving to follow Jesus amid the relentless pace of life. Many find themselves exhausted, constantly reassessing and reframing their faith in response to the rapid influx of information and experiences. Reflective poverty transforms our pursuit of truth. What once required years of deep reflection and prayer now surrenders to the allure of the easy, the neat, the brief, and the tweetable. Your Sunday school teacher walked with you for 12 years, praying for you, preparing lesson after lesson. Never receiving a dollar, showing up at your school events, bringing you Christmas gifts, baking cakes and brownies on your birthday. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. You saw one YouTube video and discredited all those years of investment in your life. People done walked with you, cried with you, served with you, been there for you. One Facebook post makes you discredit everything. We have become prisoners of the moment. On Thursday, my son wrote a letter. He had been spending the week being a little butt. He had picked on his big brother, picked on his big sister, gotten in trouble at school several times. And I spoke with him and I said, boy, you gonna get what you've been itching for all week. And he wrote a letter and left it for me and his mama. He said how everybody in the world hated him. Last night he wrote a letter and he was gonna bring it in to the room to me, but he, he told mom that daddy was talking to somebody and it sounded like he was upset and I was practicing my sermon. <laughs> and it said, mom and dad, I love you and you are the best. You take care of us. You take us places to see the world. You take us on flights. And I can't wait for this week for us to go on our trip. Too many of us live just in the moment. And our whole world's ride on what happens in the instant. And we forget how God had a plan when darkness covered the earth and it was formless and void and there seemed to be no hope. 
And he spoke into that space and said, let there be light. When it lacked order, and he separated the night from the day, And what was once empty, he filled with every teeming thing that's on this earth. And even still in that moment, what happened in the garden was still possible. But scripture says at just the right time, he sent Jesus be born of a virgin to be present to redeem all the creation the convenience of TED Talks podcasts YouTube sermons and Google searches has replaced a lifetime of dedicated reflection risk taking and learning What recent decision have you made a little bit too quickly? What position have you taken with far too little research? What have you thrown out the window that took you years to build in just a second? Consequently, our attempts to guide others through this process of evaluating their beliefs often boils down to a series of short sermons with listeners grasping only fragments. Our lack of margin for reflective thinking has cultivated a culture where counseling others is easier than engaging in humble dialogue. We've become Jude's greatest fear individuals who slander what they do not understand creating spaces prone to criticism rather than reconciliation the ease of criticism and our time constraint and anxieties have led us to prioritize tearing down rather than building up and this destructive pattern has extended beyond just those around us to our beautiful savior. The one born of a virgin who lived a sinless life, who died an undeserved death, was laid to rest in a borrowed tomb and rose on the third day to ensure that those who believe in him will never be forgotten or rendered useless by their heavenly father. In a second, I'm gonna pray. No special words or order of words, just a prayer of thanksgiving. And I invite you to pray that prayer with me. If you're here today and you do that for the first time, I wanted to invite you to let us know. You can do that either at the connections table at the back of the gym, or you can text the word CONNECT, C-O-N-N-E-C-T, to 785-432-4544. And if you are here and you have stepped over the line of faith, here's my advice to us. Let's take our earbuds out. 
Let's let boredom live. Let's stop sanitizing silence. Let's leave some room and some things empty. Let's leave space, room, and time for God to fill our hearts and minds. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. You spoke this world into existence and made a plan. Your word says that there were so many who's dreamed of the day of seeing the things that we have seen and never did. They held the promise but never saw the fulfillment. The book of Hebrews has a chapter called the Faith Hall of Fame. Of person after person, man and woman, who all they had was the promise, the hope of something far beyond their reach. It wouldn't come quickly, but it would come. They trusted not in their calendars, not in their watches, but in the God who is the author of time. The one who set the foundations of the world in place. And so, Father, as we sit here today, we repent of lifting your name with our songs. Wearing a label of your son, but neglecting you with our time. With our mouths, we proclaim that it's all yours. With our calendars, we proclaim that we have no time. We confess that we have lived as though we are the author and creator. And that you are there as a supporting cast. And today, Father, not only do we confess and repent, but we ask for you through your Holy Spirit to set things right. For once again, you to assume the place that you should sit in in our lives. Not just when we're in need, but in all the unfilled spaces. That we will stop looking for things and apps and start seeking your heart. so that it may transform ours. Our minds can't be renewed right now because we refuse to turn them over. Take what we won't give and create in us a new heart. 
so that we may live according to your word and reflect your glory. We pray these things in your darling son Jesus' name. In the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.